Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Joining me is Eric Hofstein, who is in law enforcement for 27 years. He recently retired in 2021. He started out as an EMT in a hospital emergency room in Santa Cruz, California. After that, he joined law enforcement and worked for several departments, including San Jose PD, Palm Beach Sheriff's Office in Florida, then the Contra Costa Sheriff's Office in California. At Contra Costa, he worked the jails for five years before going back to patrol. We will cover his time on the streets, several life and death close calls, and that one time he trusted his sixth sense, that inner voice that saved his life. A turning point came in his career while a deputy with Contra Costa Sheriff's Office. He responded to the fatal shooting of a California Highway Patrol officer. The incident forever changed Eric's desire to be a street cop. Instead, he chose to join the Bay Area Rapid Transit subway system, known as BART. As he'll talk about in the interview, transit law enforcement is not traditional law enforcement, and the differences are fascinating. Not only was the work different, but once there, he found a universe unlike any he'd ever seen. People who were homeless, mentally ill, drug addicted, often all three. It put him on a trajectory he had not anticipated. He became the person who was determined to save the lives that he saw withering in front of him. He became the person who would help families find their lost loved ones who had succumbed to the streets. After retiring, he wrote a book all about it, the lives he saved and sometimes couldn't save. The book's called What Doesn't Kill You, One Cop's Perspective on Homelessness, Mental Illness, and Addiction. In the book, he also writes about retirement and how hard it can be for a law enforcement officer. It wasn't until after he was retired that he was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Eric, welcome. Thank you for sitting through that long intro. <laughs> oh, thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. We have so much to cover, Eric. I, I would like to know, you know what drew you to law enforcement to begin with? I was always fascinated with law enforcement. I read a lot of books as a kid. Uh, my first books, Joseph Wambaugh, uh, The Choir Boys, Black Marble, Red Serpico, Donnie Brasco's story. So it always held a fascination, especially growing up next to New York, oh, North, okay. North Jersey region. And uh, the bug just kind of bit, and it was something exciting, different, outdoors, chasing that adrenaline junkie. Yeah. And was it what you thought it would be? Um, yes. But like most things, feeling it is a lot different than thinking about it. You think you know something until you really live the experiences of it. Mm -hmm. And then it comes home to you. Yeah. What do you mean by then it comes home to you? Um, you're exposed to a lot. So think of it like uh, reading a book versus an audio book versus watching a movie versus one of those simulators at, like Disneyland, Disney World, where more of your senses are involved. And it's something subtle that you don't think about. But when your senses are engaged, when you're there at the scene of trauma, feeling it, smelling it, tasting it in the air. It's different. It hits you differently and it affects you differently. So I knew that the job would entail being exposed to a lot of trauma and that it could be a tough career for the human brain. But it wasn't until I lived it 
that I really fully understood what that meant and the repercussions of it. Right. And did you understand it while you were going through it or not until? Yes and no. Sometimes you could feel like a sense of this isn't normal and um, I just saw something horrendous. Why am I not emotionally triggered by it? Ten-year-old who hung himself and I'm not crying yet. uh, Watch a movie and get upset watching a scene in a movie. And you kind of wonder, is this normal? Should I be this cold in a sense or disengaged from what I'm experiencing? And so you get a, you get a hint of it, but then you distract yourself and move on. You get the constant flow of new stimulation that keeps you from focusing on what's going on in yourself deep inside. And it wasn't until I retired that I had nothing but time and my own thoughts and that self-reflection bubbles up, catches up to your consciousness. And there's where you learn the price that you paid. Hmm. Well, that sounds, it doesn't sound like a billboard for retirement. That sounds. uh... No, not unless you uh, prepare and, and, you know, different law enforcement careers have different experiences. Mm-hmm. If you work a role, that's why I went to uh, BART because it was a different type of law enforcement. What you do out in rural areas in the countryside may not be what you do in the middle of Los Angeles and the kinds of things that you see or you're experienced with. So I was told at uh, some trauma therapy I went through that PTSD is measured by the difference between expectation and actual experience. So Lieutenant Grossman talks about it in his books where you would get somebody who would go through multiple combat situations, come back and be fine, no real issues. And then you get one guy who comes back from Afghanistan, was involved in a car wreck, and he's got PTSD. Mm-hmm. He said it's the reasoning behind that is that expectation. He calls it stress inoculation, mm-hmm. I believe. And with police work, it's the same thing. If you're not fully prepared for some of the things you go into, or if you work a very busy area where you're constantly surprised, surprise, (laughs) shooting, surprise, dead body, before you have time to really decompress what you've already been through, then these things can build up. And I don't think as a whole, the career does a very stellar job at preparing young officers for that. So you open the book with potentially one of the worst traumas you experienced, which I referenced in the open, and that is the line of duty death of the California Highway Patrol officer. Yes, Ken Youngstrom. So I had been through a lot. I almost lost my life a, a few times, but it didn't really affect me in a way that it, that I could still maintain functioning um, at work, that I could still handle patrol without issues. And this one hit me, and at first I just couldn't understand why it affected me. You know, now in hindsight I can, but like I was explaining with PTSD, basically his partner had been calling 1199 over the the scanner. That's uh, where we heard it because we have a different radio system. And when I started to go in route, I'm thinking maybe it's a down CHP motorcycle officer. Maybe it's most because that's mostly the dangers they face. There's a lot of traffic hazards, and then when I get there. There's just this violent CPR. Boom. I walk through the line of cars and there they are thumping away on his chest. And I just see those pants like mine and the body flopping and his partner was was helping. 
and I could hear the crinkling of the glass in the truck that they just shot into. It was a, it was a Jeep and the suspect was still in there. And I guess just the complex layers of stimulation of all that shock affected me was maybe the straw, the proverbial straw and something changed in me. I didn't realize until a year later that I wasn't being proactive with car stops anymore. Like I used to be very, very proactive and I didn't want to become what they call a rod retired on duty. I loved doing the work. I loved working hard, but something felt different and I wasn't myself. And what was the incident that took his life? They did a traffic stop. He and his partner Ken was asked to help as a backup officer based on the dynamics of the way they were placed on the freeway. And when uh, I was told that Ken waved down the vehicle and it pulled over and when he walked up to the window, he was shot in the mouth just that fast. I believe the guy may have been part of one of those subversive groups like Sovereign Citizen or something. There was just no chance. Uh, His partner saw Ken drop, return fire, kill the suspect, and started yelling 1199 on the radio, but our dispatcher didn't pick up on it. He said, I don't think CHP picked up on it. Um, I just got a message, hey, there's an officer yelling 1199 in the scanner. Do you hear it? And that's all we knew. And I actually violated department policy because we weren't allowed to respond unless we were dispatched to an outside agency, but I didn't care. I went flying down the freeway that was locked up cars backed up for miles and uh, eventually made it to the scene and then boom there it is in front of me you know and it brought it home because i i had been on a car stop where they tried to assassinate me I mean, it was only because of my officer safety and my that i guess you call it that sixth sense that something wasn't right what happened uh, i could tell you the, the short version of it if you want the sure. details yeah i was working at san jose pd Silicon Valley, heart of Silicon Valley, was considered the top agency in the country, entire country then. I was driving down the freeway at night. I see a car all of a sudden jerk over to the far right like he was avoiding me. I followed. He starts picking up speed, hauling butt down the ramp onto a local street in uh, what they call East San Jose. I'm thinking it's going to be a pursuit. And then all of a sudden he jams on the brakes, just stops. First red flag. So I put it out. I get out of the car quickly because you don't want to sit in your car. And when I put it out and my partners are in route, I saw the driver was smoking a cigarette and just kind of staring at me, that rear view mirror, taking that long, deep track. And something was telling me that just, just something, there's something about this guy. I don't know what it is. And then he was getting impatient. He's waving at me, come on up. What are you doing? Flicks a cigarette out the window, holding his hands up. Like, what are we waiting for? Come on up here. And I wouldn't do it. You don't wow. ever do what's what they want you to do. You do the opposite. So I um, told my partner who showed up, hey, I'm not walking up on this car. There's just something going on. I don't know what it is, but I'm calling him back to me. So I try to call him back to me. He gets out of the car. He starts dancing around, twirling when I tell him, let me see your waist trying to antagonize me. I guess in hindsight, he wanted me to get mad and run up there and grab him. I wouldn't do it. Well, eventually I get him to come back far enough. My partner grabs him and uh, we call out the front passenger and I yelled out, they train you in high risk car stops, even though 
wasn't really a high risk car stop. I still did it anyway. Hey, you in the back, sit up. I know you're in there. Mm. Sure enough, head starts popping up. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. <laughs> I did. Oh. I I did. I didn't realize. I'm thinking, oh you know, you God. just kind of do you do it in a training. It's just a training is you always challenge them. You always check the trunk. You only walk up on a car and I'm um, thinking, this, okay, this is done. But, but, oh my God, there's a head popping up. What is that? Oh. And it was in the, the back seat behind the driver's seat and it slowly raises up. And it was a young, like teen, late teens call him back and uh when we go up to clear the car there was a loaded makarov in the car stolen makarov i don't know what that is it's a russian weapon okay uh handgun so you got the driver to walk back to you first yeah driver front passenger and then i bluffed the car and a third one popped up who was hiding in the back seat behind the driver's seat where they were trying to get me to walk up to god the driver was cocky, he was calling himself a gangster. In hindsight, putting it all together, at first it doesn't click. I put it all together like, oh my God, they were trying to bait me to pull them over, trying to bait me to walk up on the car, and they were going to get their kicks shooting an officer when I walked up. So that was always in the back of my head, that and some other incidents I'd been through. And then here I am with Ken Youngstrom, now years later, in the middle of the freeway. And the CHP motto is, is um, I will not die on a dirty freeway. And yet, there mm-hmm. I was with him. Uh, he had, I think, five kids. Oh, uh, gosh. Big family, yeah. I went to the hospital where they they unplugged uh, everything because he, he was an organ donor. Went to the funeral. Family, um, his partner spoke on stage. And I guess everything just shifted. No matter how much of a prepared myself for all these things I'd been through. This one just, I didn't respect mother nature. I really thought, you know, that uh, I could tough my way through anything because I'd been through so much, but it, it builds up. Were the other incidents also life-threatening? Yeah. I I drove into the middle of a drive-by shooting once, uh, ducked over almost, (laughs) luckily didn't wreck the car. Got trapped in a garage trying to rescue a suicidal subject. Engine was running. He was already dead, but we didn't know it because his skin was all pink from the carbon monoxide and thought he was still alive. But we got trapped in the garage and it was oh. a basement basement garage. Creepy, very creepy situation. And we couldn't get the garage door open. The power was out. We were stuck. And I was literally holding my last breath thinking... Oh Oh crap! This is how it happens. Wow. <laughs> this, and my partner was able to grab an emergency release on a garage door and was pulling and pulling. And I ran over, holding my breath, and we're both yanking. And boom! It popped, and the garage door opened. I got carbon monoxide poisoning and oh. yelled at by the EMTs. But um, <laughs> jumping in the bay to rescue a woman who fought us in the water, and you know we could have drowned. And yeah. This is one after another, but you get. You get that adrenaline rush. You get that that kind of a thrill out of that riskiness. I guess it's probably what a thrill seekers get with bungee jumping or skydiving where, yes, the risk is, even if it's low, there's still just knowing that that possibility is there, that danger. You get that adrenaline rush and it makes you feel alive. It, it makes you feel like you can handle anything <laughs> and there's no limit as to what you can expose yourself to. And I learned my limitations the hard way because Mother Nature has a way of coming up to you with that bat across the back of the head. 
<laughs> you will respect me. Wonk. <laughs> you were starting to say then that his death, that was just it for you. I mean, it was just, you know, this one was the, st the straw that broke the camel's back. And you made some decisions then at that in your career. Yeah. I didn't really think of it that wasn't that articulate at the time. I just knew something was different. I knew that it, a job didn't feel the same anymore. I wasn't doing uh, my proactive work I used to do. And I couldn't stand the thought of just being a lump, collecting a paycheck and going to nine, answering 911 calls and that's it. Yeah. Um, but Bart pays very well up in the six figures, very high pay, great benefits, perks. They were hiring a couple of uh, guys at the sheriff's department had already gone over there and told me to do it. So, And this is the Bay Area. It stands for yeah, Bay, Bay Area. Area Rapid Transit. And the other thing is, is it's transit law enforcement. It's not traditional law enforcement. They even have their own statute that gives them their officer powers. So I grew up in New York in the subway system. I always joke, you ever heard of that book? Everything I learned in life, I learned in kindergarten. Yeah. Uh, yeah, everything I learned in life, I learned in the New York subway. <laughs> <laughs> so I was familiar with the craziness of the subway systems, public transit underground. But uh, it was a quick process. I tested, I got hired. And the difference is when you work a traditional police beat, you have a neighborhood, a beat that's yours that you're responsible for out in the world. In transit, you have stations. Other than the parking lots, you don't even really get out there and see the world. You're not going into people's homes. You're not going into their businesses. You're not doing a lot of the traditional uh, domestic violence calls inside a house. You're getting everything on train platforms and parking lots. So I thought, okay, more money, less of the drama and trauma. It's a win-win. And uh, <laughs> again, I didn't pay attention to the what you don't, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. In a in a police job, traditional police job, you kind of get a feel for your neighborhood. I work some pretty dangerous areas, but I always felt comfortable. You kind of get, just like in the jails, you, you get a feel for when things are not right, when something's in the air or, you know, someone is feuding with someone else and you know there's going to be some violence in this particular street. You kind of pick up on, the, on life in the community. In a train station, you don't have a community anymore. When those doors open, you don't know what's going to come spilling out. It could be some guy on a multi-state crime spree coming to visit San Francisco before he goes out in a blaze of glory. And all of a sudden, he's standing in front of you when those doors open. You get half, a, well, it's about half a million people, 450,000 commuters per day. So you get one train car coming up. The trains can come as fast as every five minutes to three minutes, one after another, with a thousand people, because <laughs> it's a hundred people per car, ten car trains. So train pulls up, thousand people dump onto the platform. Three minutes later, another thousand people. Three minutes later, so, you know, during the commute hours. So it's crazy because in police work, you kind of you hide in a sense. You put yourself where you're out of a position to be surrounded. It's a safety thing. You mm -hmm. don't want to be standing in crowds and around people who can who have access to your gun. If you want to kind of place yourself in areas where you can watch people but not be exposed to the dangers of not having contact and cover. And a train station, sorry, you don't <laughs> get that luxury. 
you're 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 walking onto the train car and people are fighting and now you're in cramped chest to butt tightly packed trains trying to stop stuff and the insidious part i work different stations but i chose to work in san francisco and we were foot patrol two men teams because uh, for safety so they have the Transbay tube, which is famous. It's a protected, homeland security protected uh, structure. And it runs from San Francisco to Oakland, to Alameda County. Uh, that's the bay. And that ride of like 15 minutes is a long ride. So you get on the train and say there's a fight happening, which San Francisco gets a lot of violence. And those doors close. You're now riding that train through the Transbay tube <laughs> with no backup until you come back out an Alameda County right. people hopefully waiting for you over there. You knew as a deputy that if I call for help, I got guys coming. I got other departments coming in those train stations. You got your guys coming and sometimes it could take them 20 minutes to get there. They either drive, train, walk. Well, you bring up two thoughts. I don't know if you want to comment on the New York city subway incident where the Marine Daniel Perry subdued the passenger blackmail who then ended up yeah do you have an opinion on that yeah uh well if you want to call it an opinion a lot of that happens in bart daily all shift long you get calls of out of control subjects and that's i watched the video it was typical out of control yelling animated the question is is whether he was a threat to anybody and different people based on their experiences and training in life will have different levels of perception of when I'm threatened, when is my safety endangered, and do I need to take action right now? I think the guy was military, uh, either current or prior. Yeah. That probably spoke to his level of safety of needing to take action as opposed to a school teacher who might have been witnessing it. Right. And the problem is, is they train military. You're not training to really subdue people as much as you are defense. Um, he held on to that hold for too long. Personally, I didn't see anything to indicate that he meant to, for those final results, the guy to die. Uh, he wasn't trying to kill, but that happens with a lot of those techniques. And sometimes people have medical and health conditions. So I think it was a tragic accident, but I'm not privy to the details of the case. I just mm. know what I saw in the video. Well, and, you know, I lived in New York City for 13 years and there's something and I was there recently and I was thinking about that incident and it's something about being on a subway car where you really do feel trapped if something starts to go wrong. I mean, I can't get off that car. That car becomes real small, real fast, you know, and it, it, it's a magnified feeling, it, you know, yes. if you're, sitting, you're sitting there and someone starts going, getting weird and dangerous. It's like, holy shit. <laughs> I'm in real danger, you know? And if you have that added affect of feeling trapped, yeah. claustrophobia kicks in, your level of panic rises and right. Right. your sense of response will be different than if you were out on a street where you might've have a chance to walk away or get some distance. And I also want to mention you referenced uh, working in the jails and you know that of which you speak because you did spend time I have a number of friends who are in corrections and who listen to the podcast. So in your sheriff's department, you did spend time working in the jails. 
Yeah, the, the, there's a difference in the type of positions they have. They have corrections officers, COs. Right. And then in California, at least, some places have deputies. So you're an actual police officer, but working in the jail, full police powers, which the inmates learn very quickly. There's, there's a difference. The, I once had a uh, pursuit. I witnessed a big gang shootout, chased down the car, caught the North Richmond gang members and pulled an overtime shift. So I arrested him, get the car, get the gun, chases over, guy went to prison eventually. And I come back, my shift ends, and I say, hey, I'll take that overtime shift on the module. Well, the, the guys I arrested were on my jail module. So I go from chasing them on the streets to ordering them dinner and giving them their supply. And I joked with one of them. I was actually had a really good rapport with one of the gangbangers. And uh, he even asked me if he could get his gun back. He said, man, I paid 800 bucks for that gun. It was a Beretta. He goes, can I get that back? Go, no, you can't get that back. <laughs> um, but it's just so it's it's different. You can go from street, the same people on the street, to the same people in the jail. That actually added to a level of safety because mm. they they know you. It's, you know, they tell you personalize yourself with someone who has animosity toward you. They know us. They know us from the jails. We know them. We know their families. We sit with them when they get their family visits. We feed them. We get them their medications. And then we work the streets. So there's a level of familiarity that deputies get and a level of respect. I had 10 years of experience when I went to the jail and I thought I knew it all. I knew a lot, but I will tell you that there is no better training grounds for law enforcement and work in the jails. <laughs> if they could, every police academy out there should have trainees if they could afford it, which they can't. But if they could, had a magic wand with unlimited budget, every academy cadet should work a jail module for at least a month or two. It changes the way you talk to people. It changes the way you look at people. And when you pick up on the whole module is about to break out into a huge fight or a hit, <laughs> and you just get that, uh-oh, things are too quiet in here. It is an experience in education that cannot be replaced. Not that I loved it. I hated it as much as I liked it. Yeah. But it was invaluable to me and my training. I'm glad I did it. I had five years total. I, that's interesting. I don't think there are many departments that do require that. I think it's mostly sheriff's office offices. Yeah. In California, the sheriff's departments are responsible for running the jails first. Okay. Okay. Patrol, is, not all have patrols. Some just work the jails. Contra Costa was nice because we not only had large unincorporated areas that we could patrol, but we had contract cities where the cities would contract with the sheriff's office for police services. So that was one of the things that attracted me to Contra Costa. Um, you could do different types of patrol in big areas. You weren't trapped in like San Francisco, where I think they sometimes have 10 square blocks. I mean, that's it. You're looking at the same street signs for you know, 10, 12 hours a shift, but you have to work the jails first, usually. And when you say you learn to talk to people, you mean with respect or? or you, you literally learn everything from the ground up. So when you watch municipalities dealing with people, there's a lot of officious kind of talking at them, command presence. I'm telling you, do this. Very matter of fact, just the facts, ma'am. With deputies, you become a part of your environment. It's like being in a POW camp, you know, where you're going to, 
you rub off on them. They rub off on you. You start talking like them. They talk like you. You get that, you get that connection, that human connection, and you understand the person you're dealing with that you're talking to, that you're interacting with, and you end up speaking to them on a different level, a more respectful level, yes, because you're looking and talking to them more as a person than as a suspect or a detainee. As a police officer in a city department, it would be, you, sir, I want you to sit on the ground, put your hands on your lap, cross your legs, don't move, stay where you are, or I'm going to handcuff you. As a deputy, it's like, sit down on the ground, keep your hands in your laps, don't cause me no problems, all right? You just have a, a kind of a different tone of voice, a different vernacular, more of an interaction of a back and forth engagement. And you understand where the threats are at. Cops get in trouble because I was a fight coach. I trained Muay Thai fighters, did jujitsu. And I noticed that when you have no concept of something, when you have no experience in an area like fighting, and then you're thrown into a fight, you don't know what you don't know. So fear comes from not knowing. You don't know how, oh my God, I'm in a fight. Oh my God, I'm in a struggle. And I'm throwing punches now. Whereas I was very experienced in jujitsu and Muay Thai and boxing. So I had a feel for when I'm really in trouble. When is somebody really trying to hurt me as opposed to active resistance and he's just trying to squirm away. And the jail teaches you a lot of that. You get into a lot of scuffles and you learn very quickly, okay, this dude's not swinging on me. You know, he's, or he's tweaking, he's coming down because he just came through intake. Uh, or this dude, this gun is what they call a J cat. He's just crazy and he missed pill call. So he's nuts. I'm just going to sit on his back until the troops get here. Whereas uh, municipalities, that's it. It's fists are going. It's pounding time. This guy's resistant. Brain is saying, this guy's resisting me. I got to make him stop. I'm going to keep punching and flailing until he stops. And I've never seen pain compliance ever work on anyone, especially much less out of their mind or high. Right. So you, your uses of forces are, are lowered with deputies, a lot less incidents of use of force. You get to learn how to use your mouth and talk somebody into compliance as opposed to having to force them into compliance, which is good for the department. It's good for you. It's good for your career. It's good for your health. Win-win. Mm. Well, so then how, you know, you have this experience and now you're at BART and now you're in this completely different universe. What kind of arrests are you making? What kind of things are you seeing? You kind of touched on it when you said that, you know, you're on that train car and there's a bad dude there with you and he's maybe looking at you or you're worried about him paying attention to you and you can't get out. We got a lot of that. People start to panic. Little things become big things. And big things turn into violent things. A lot of fights, a lot of disturbances, a lot of drugs, a lot of uh, drug use. People smoking crack and fentanyl right there in the middle of a fully packed train car with little kids because they, they sneak into the system. What years are we talking? What years did you start with, Barton? I started 2015. So even and then, they're doing fentanyl? Well, they were doing drugs, but towards the okay. end, fentanyl okay. became the big one. But crank meth and mm. crack 
was very common and they would smoke their pipes on the trains. They, they would shoot up in the back of the cars and you have 8,000 homeless crammed into 49 square miles of San Francisco and it's easy to sneak into the stations. It's what they call the honor system. They're designed just like the Washington DC stations uh, where you could just walk right in basically. And they sit on the trains and stay comfortable and shoot their dope. Wow. Yeah, they, they get from the areas they're in to the areas where they want to get their drugs or steal property to sell for their drugs. So you get a lot of those calls. People who have issues, mental health disorders, drug use, they lose their licenses. You have people who came out of prison, mm. didn't get their licenses back. So how are you going to get around? Public transportation. So there's a high amount of people who don't have cars, don't own them, or don't even have driver's licenses. And they need that system to get around. So there's a higher concentration of risky subjects, so hmm. to say, where you're likely to get into it with somebody who's got a background in criminal and mental health issues, drug issues. So those three aspects, homelessness, mental illness, and addiction, the trifecta, as I call it, the three pillars, were right there in the thousands. And in uh, the way they worked with us as two-man teams, we were responsible. Our beat was three stations. The mission is a pretty long ride that we stretched all the way out to the mission. So we had our two-man teams that were running around handling the calls in there. And you would sometimes have to drive by car because that's the other part. When you're a deputy and you get a 911 call, you just drive there. But they wanted to see us on the trains. Uh, there was always a complaint. They didn't see enough officers. So great. You walk down there on the platform, you get on a train to do a train ride, the doors close and a fight breaks out where you just were. Now you got to wait for the train to get to the oh, next no. station. And go back. Wait for a train <laughs> to come back. And hey, I'm here. Oh, God. It was different. And same thing with backup. If you needed backup and they were in a bad location, they couldn't get to you. I, I once had a fight that lasted, I think it was 15, 20 minutes. Basically, he's jujitsu. I'm sitting on the guy on the platform. He was throwing blows at me. <laughs> And it took 15, 20 minutes before I saw the first set of uniforms coming to, coming to help me. Jeez, um, heavy drug user. But I was focused on San Francisco. That's where I kept myself stationed. And while there, I had a lot of contact with these homeless people, these addicts. Let me read something from your book to kind of paint the picture. So again, the book is What Doesn't Kill You? One Cop's Perspective on Homelessness, Mental Illness, and Addiction. Uh, and in it, you talk a lot about the people that you interacted with and trying to help them. But the description you I wanted to read is when you got to BART, you wrote dozens of bodies in all shapes, sizes, and conditions were strewn about the marble floors. The stench of sweat and detritus was heavy. It was an underground wasteland of the human condition, populated by characters from many walks of life. I walked the hallways curious. What could have been so bad that a grimy train station floor was an acceptable alternative to whatever they left behind? Were there common themes to their stories? I knew there must have been significant crisis for them to willingly choose this lifestyle. Perhaps they weren't willing. The human mind can become accustomed to the most horrific environments. So my first question about that is I lived in New York. I took the subway. I did not see this kind of 
life. You know, I didn't see this. I didn't see this on the, are you talking about people in the trains on the platforms or is this an underground that we were talking about? Mostly San Francisco. And it was in the hallways, mm. uh, starting in the hallways where you just bodies lined down the hallways, some half dead, sometimes some dead down to the platforms onto the trains. And it was everywhere. And people were constantly, uh, a lot of people have never seen it before. So, of course, they were calling 911, do something about this. This guy just took a crap on the floor. This guy's shooting up. There's, I'm tripping over people in the hallway. Some guy cursed at me. Do something about it. Do something. And you heard it constantly. And having been so proactive as a deputy and coming into BART, I thought, you know, I'm a trained investigator. I, I now have over 20 years of experience why don't I treat this like any other investigation? I need to get to the bottom of this. Why are these people? Why are there so many people here? What is, what is, you see, to most people in San Francisco, this was normal. This was everyday life. Tripping, stepping over the bodies, stepping over the dirty syringes. Uh, one county crew, or I'm sorry, city crew told me they cleaned 3,000 dirty needles a month out of the civic center. One station, just one. I'm thinking, what is this? This is not normal. I need to get to the bottom of this. You lived there and had taken the train. Had you not seen that as a commuter? Um, no, I actually did not really travel BART before okay. I got hired by them. I had a car and BART was a new experience for me. I had taken it a few times, but I had never really gone to the San Francisco stations hmm. where, like I said, it's 8,000. Back then it wasn't 8,000, it was a little bit less. It was maybe around five or a little over four and a half thousand. And they were mostly concentrated in that the Tenderloin, the Civic Center stations where I worked. Okay. And if you type in Civic Center and you look it up, you could see it today. You, you'll see the black market freely functioning in the middle of the daylight, uh, stolen property being traded for drug money. You said you wanted to take an investigative approach to this. To find out why. I, I was always very proactive and I had some, I wouldn't call them high profile, but I, I had some very proactive cases that I made and I always enjoyed finding problems. That was the thrill of patrol for me was when you're a detective, everything's handed to you. Here's a case, go investigate it. To me, the thrill was finding something others didn't know about. Ooh, this criminal activity is taking place and no one knows about it. Identifying the players stopping the crime, arresting the players, and resolving it. I had nothing but time on my hands in BART, unlike uh, at Contra Costa, where sometimes you could be 12 reports down in one shift. I wasn't getting buried in paperwork. You had a lot of calls, but I'm thinking, oh, if I got time and I love to work, I'm going to solve this. Plus, I was realizing I, I kind of had a, uh, what to call it, a change of heart and an epiphany. You know, you say you get into this work to help others. And I'm thinking, well, if I am going to stay true to that, if I truly believe what I said when I started and I left being an EMT to become a cop, then this is it. I need, this is, something is going on here. Now that wasn't at first. At first I had a bit of animosity. I had that New York skill kind of look at these scumbags, but I had an incident where there was some young kids they must have been late teens, no no more than 19 years old, on the stairs shooting up heroin. And 
there were kids going back and forth because it was school hours. And I remember being furious. They shoot right there in the middle of the stairs, needle out, people walking around them shooting the heroin. And I yelled at them. I, I had some bad language, unprofessional. Uh, <laughs> I was so mad that they're doing this in front of people like that. Mm-hmm. And they ran off. And one of them came back downstairs to me, walked up to me. And I remember thinking, what, what do you want now? And he said, you know, I wasn't always a piece of shit. And he walked off and it was, it rung something, some bell in my head just rung after that. Like, you know, maybe I'm not always looking at this (laughs) with the right perspective. What is this? You know, for that kid to come down there and know He's what I'm saying he is, to have that type of insight and self-perspective. Maybe there's more to this. And maybe he's someone who needs help. So I challenged myself. Like in the book, I talk about Yolanda, the first incident I went through. I had to challenge myself again and my own perspective and and opinions on things like drug use. And that's where it started. Yolanda was the woman who almost killed you, right? And um... Yeah, that was the right fighting and in then, the middle of like gasoline. And then she ended up wanting you to come to, what was it? Her, uh, her graduation ceremony for the program she was in. A drug program. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a mental health uh, and drug program, but it was mostly focused mental health. And she graduated and she had a job waiting for her when she got out. And she really wanted uh, me to be there for it. And, and you were thrown off by this. Yeah, it was that was the same feeling of, oh, she just wants to have a uniform there to get one over on the judge and she wants to make it look good. And I I had that that narrow minded, I call it the meat eater attitude. <laughs> I was one of the meat eaters, red, patriotic, black and white, this is good, this is bad, this is evil, this is not. And I challenged myself there really looking at it, knowing I just, eh, I'm just making excuses not to go because I feel uncomfortable. It's out of my comfort zone. And these little changes in me started to develop over time. And then in, when Kenyon happened and I realized it was time for change and I brought these new feelings with me. And then here I am now surrounded by thousands of Yolandas and no one is helping them. There's no one to call. I learned things like schizophrenia, doesn't hit until your late 20 or early 20s to late 20s. Right. But the system tells you when your child turns 18, they're no longer your child. HIPAA kicks in. So many of these people I worked with, I heard the same story from the families. I was working with about 45 families by the time I was done. We had no one to call. We didn't know what to do. He was a straight-A student. He had a business. He had a family. He was loved by the community. Uh, He had everything going for him. And then all these same stories. And then one day, he's talking strangely. He's acting strangely. He just walked away from his job, walked away from his family, started doing drugs. And now we don't know what to do. What do we do? We do a missing persons report, but a missing persons report, all they're going to do is say, hey, dude, your family listed you as missing. Are you missing? No, I'm good. Okay. That's it. They don't take you anywhere. You're allowed to be missing. Uh, You're allowed to not talk to your family. But these families knew their children or their parents in some cases. Like my my first one I wrote about in the book, Miska. She was four letters at an Ivy League school. 
worked for a nonprofit, and I believe the stress from the nonprofit center over the edge. No drugs, just purely mental health. I believe some type of schizophrenia or schizoaffective. And here she is living on a BART train floor. I tried to get her into a shelter, and she said, you know, the last time I was at a shelter, I went to take a shower, and some dude took off his clothes and got in the shower with me. I would rather be on the street than go to a shelter. Wow. So my preconceived notions. Okay, shelters are not the answer sometimes. Some of these people don't do drugs. Some of them are highly educated. One of them I worked with had a master's in nuclear engineering. His job was to inspect nuclear reactors, the coolant systems. And here he is, even with money, eating out of the trash can every day. I would come into work and my phone, I would turn on my work phone and the messages would just start popping up from parents. Look at my baby, baby pictures. Look at my baby. Look at my little girl. Is she alive? If you see her today, can you tell her mommy loves her? (laughs) And I got a, okay, well, um, and I got a bunch of those. So there's the start to my day. And when you talk to the families, they're like, we just, what do we do? Who do we call? So I became that person. How did you do that then? How did you become that person? I became the conduit. I realized that, yes, there are some who are running away from their families. And I saw that story many times where, you know, the tough love, because a lot of parents don't know how to deal with mental health issues, don't know how to deal with drug issues. And a large percentage, if not most, had some kind of trauma in their past whether it was sexual assault, uh, abuse, something. And even the families didn't know. But this is the source of their addiction. The drugs themselves don't do it because otherwise everybody's ever had an Oxycontin pill or fentanyl after surgery would be an addict. These people are self-medicating pain and trauma. And I would talk to the families and I would see often this regret. I pushed too hard. I was too hard on them. They ran out the door. They left. They didn't want to put up with the rules. I tried to force them into rehab, but you can't force somebody into rehab. They have to want to go. And then I would talk to the homeless people. And a lot of them who are rational enough would say, you know, I remember one girl told me, she said, man, I couldn't wait to get out of the house. And now having a roof and a bed and food available are luxuries that I dream about. So they change. The people in the street change, the families change, they just don't know it, and they don't have a way to reunite because you don't have anything when you're homeless. If you get a phone, it's stolen the next day or the same day. Everything you own is gone. At one point, I caught them using their shoes as pillows, and I asked one of them what's going on. They said, oh, now they're stealing the shoes off our feet Mm -hmm. while we're sleeping. Mm -hmm. We got to sleep on them so we don't have our shoes stolen. So how do you get in touch with them? How do you find them? I call it the bell jar effect. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Sylvia Plath. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you remember a little controversy, female author. Yeah. Who committed committed suicide. That's right. She had mental health issues herself. And one girl described what she did. She said, imagine waking up every day, not knowing anything about the world, except whether it's light out or dark out. You don't know what day it is. You don't know what time it is. You don't know what's going on in the world. You don't have normal conversations with people anymore. There's no human connection. Um, I miss feeling human. And these little things hit me. And that started to change me. You know, when you say it changed you and this became your mission, 
what is it that you would do? You would go up to a person that you see and start asking them about themselves and then try to figure out, is this mental illness? Is this drug use? How did it play out? I developed a triage system, basically a six-point triage system. When I was talking to people, uh, whether I was dispatched to a 911 call or I just ran across them and was getting them off the floor because they were blocking the floors, especially the young ones, the women. We focused on the women because sexual assault is 100%. Every female out there is being assaulted, usually more than once. One girl told me 80% of them are gorilla pimped. God. Yeah. So I would see females, especially, boom, I'd go right over and I'd start talking to them. And the first three points are, are they willing, unwilling, or unable? Unable would be like schizophrenia untreated. I got one kid back to his family in Texas. He was wandering the streets for five years, fighting the police and everything, but he was just untreated schizophrenia. And once I was able to get that system to do its job and he got his first meds on board, that with his mother there that week, boom, one week cured, went back to his family in Texas. But how did you get to the point where you knew what the problem was? Well, that's the second part of the triage system. Oh, so sorry. first, well, it's no, no, that's that was a good segue. You, once I figure out whether they're unable and um, I have to work the system, I have to take a different route as opposed to unwilling, nothing I can do. They're rational. They don't want to talk to me fine. I'm not going to make them feel pressured. If you ever need anything, come talk to me. And then the willing. There were ones who were like, you know, I'm sick of this life. I'm sick of this. I miss my family. One girl was missing her mom. She had run away when she was 14. Hadn't seen her mom or talked to her in 16 years. I reunited them. They will take any help you give them. The next step is the three points of, is it mental health, addiction, or basically just criminal behavior. Some of them get addicted to the lifestyle. This is just, this is my thing. I steal from the stores. I get my money. I do my drugs. It medicates me and just day after day after day. Are they into the lifestyle too much, too hooked up? As opposed to somebody who's got some mental health disorders who are just so addicted to drugs, they're just not thinking straight. But when they're clear and rational, say, I want to do something different. I want to change things. Here is the key to it all. You'll hear people on the left and people on the right with their ideas on what to do about homelessness and mental health and addiction. And the problem is, is the answer is actually very easy, but people are too polarized and stubborn, set in their opinions like I was, to be open-minded enough to understand how to address it, which is, it's as unique to the person as people are unique. Each person has their own story. Each person had their own set of life circumstances that led to that point that they are now standing there talking to me, a police officer in the middle of the station. And you had to unravel that. You had to understand the person you were talking to and what set of life circumstances got them there. If they were being gang raped and pimped out at 13 years old and abused by their family, that was a whole different can of worms. And someone like the nuclear scientist who was just pure mental health or that we had this Japanese girl who had a psychotic break and was living on the streets for five years. And the system kept sending her through the revolving door. We found the family in Japan. We uh, got them to get a hold of the family doctor. And then I got her into the hospital using the 5150 is what they call it, mental health hold. Yeah. And I basically 
finagle that hospital into don't let her go. She has a family. Don't do it. No revolving door today. Not today. And it worked. She's back in Japan with her family. So you have to look at the uniqueness of the situation and say, okay, these are the steps we have to take. Other people qualified for programs and willingly put themselves into programs, the lead program, for example. And I worked Mm -hmm. with them there. Each one had a different story. Each one had a different path to take. And if you follow harm reduction, which means taking what meet them where they're at and taking it one step at a time, you don't go from day one to, all right, now you're going to kick your drug habit. That, that crutch that keeps you from feeling all that trauma and pain, we're going to take that away right away. And you're going to go right back to where you started when you first went to drugs in the first place. Some people have to be eased into it. One of my caseworkers said he was one out of 100 people who went through an abstinence-based program. And he was, he was the only one of 100 who made it, whereas some can do an abstinence-based program. And that's the problem is, is you can't get set in your ways, which is what a lot of these uh, city services did. They had uh, some hostile anti-cop mentalities, anti-establishment, let them do drugs, let them do what they want, a hedonistic kind of approach. And then you had people who said, just arrest them and stick them in jail. Jail works for some, right. not for others. Right. So many things are running through my mind. First of all, you're one person. How did you have the time, the ability? I mean, I think you did. You said you did some of this on your off time. You'd go down there out of uniform. Yeah. To make it work, that's the other thing. I once saw one of the kids I was working with sitting on the Civic Center, and his caseworkers from the lead program were walking towards him. He got up and walked away, but he came over and talked to me. I said, you know, being from the jails, Like, hey, why are you talking to me? I'm in uniform. You don't have a post with you, you know, a second person to make sure you're not snitching. Why are you talking to me, but you won't talk to your own caseworkers? He said, because they they just want to talk to me about what they do professionally. They're not Mm. in, they don't care about me. They're just, they just want to talk at me. I have a genuine relationship with you. And I realized they're very sensitive to feeling when there's that connection. And that's what they need the most. They want to be seen. They're alone in the world, and they, the only connection they have is to other drug addicts and users, dysfunctional people. And I have to maintain that connection while at the same time not falling into that abyss with them. I guess the key terms that I figured out was motivation and timing. Right. When they were motivated, that's the key to getting them moving up that ladder, that harm reduction ladder. So that meant sometimes when I got off from work, I had to go find them, say, hey, I got that bed. Are you willing to go to that bed right together? Or I have a package or a message from the family and I couldn't carry it around with me in uniform. So I would literally have a care package from family and say, here's some food and some pictures from your mom and your dad who miss you. And I knew that was not just the right thing to do, but it was important to them. And that could make it easier for me to hook them into wanting to go back to their life. So the work had to be able to be flexible enough to be done when it needed to be done with that motivation and timing and not just that's the problem, not nine to five. Right. I've heard, I've read and heard you say that that's a big part of these problem with these programs and, and to explain to the audience lead stood for what again, I know it started in Seattle. 
yeah, law enforcement assisted diversion. It was supposed to be a carrot and stick approach. You got a citation or an arrest misdemeanor for drugs. And instead of going through the system uh, with incarceration, we're going to give you a chance to go into the program. And if you complete that program, we're going to dismiss the charges. Works in theory and on paper, but the way it was practiced was terrible. It fell apart. Because? The program ended. They didn't refund it. You had said that people don't need help between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., and you were bridging that gap. You were out there. You know, but these people, the, the organizations that want these people to get help aren't willing to be there before 9 a.m. and after 5. I mean, the system just doesn't work that way. Is that right. what I'm hearing? Okay. Yeah. And that's what I realized very quickly. Motivation and timing. So people would come to me all of a sudden and say, I'm like jumping into a pool of cold water. It's like, I've been working my way towards it. I'm ready. I'm ready now. I'm ready. Find me a place and I can do it right, but it's got to be right now. And I say, oh, look, 530, everything's closed. And I would call a caseworker who was maybe still in an office and they say, have them make an appointment. Have them come by Monday, the clinic. Come by Monday. Okay. (laughs) The weekend. In five minutes, he's not even going to remember talking to me. He's going to be passed out in a corner with the the syringe in his arm. But this is the way the system for $2 billion this is what they had to offer. Make appointments, refer a name. We're going to talk to you. Oh, you don't want services? Well, there's nothing I can do. It really cost millions and millions of dollars to do that. I could do that. I do. I am doing it. So I made a point. I'm doing this for free and I'm getting people into the, back into the services and getting them to their families. I'm making stuff work and you're not, and you're the one who's getting paid millions. And I kind of did it as a thumbing my nose or flipping my middle finger at the system that hated me because I wore a uniform. And they would tell me, you bring us great clients. You bring us great cases. How do you do it? Because I'm doing what needs to be done. This is how it works. Give me a caseworker on the weekend. I used to beg, give me just one caseworker for the weekends. Just one. Couldn't do it. Nope. Everything's a numbers game. If I contact somebody and they say, yeah, I'll come to the clinic Monday and they show up, they mark that down, services rendered. If they get somebody into housing, an SRO, we house somebody. Now, 80% of all people housed in San Francisco are evicted or lose their housing, walk away within 30 days. But the next month, I'm going to get them back in again. Oh, look, I housed two housing incidents. No, it's the same guy. You keep cycling through the same door, but you're getting grant money for all these great numbers on paper. And that frustrated the hell out of me. Another term you mentioned was harm reduction. And what is the concept of harm reduction? It started from what I understand, what I read, it started in the 80s with the AIDS epidemic, and it, it created the needle exchange program to reduce AIDS infections, uh, the rate of AIDS, uh, infections. And it kind of morphed into basically, in Canada, they're handing out, I talked to somebody up there, they're handing out drugs to people and calling that harm reduction. In San Francisco, they do needle exchanges and give crack pipes from churches. They call that harm reduction. So the problem is, is it's just like how you define a success. Another little epiphany I learned is how you define things matters. Harm reduction for me takes a bigger picture protecting the public from theft, protecting the public from crime, at the same time helping this person 
to me, that's harm reduction. So it really just mm. depends who you talk to. They're going to have their own opinion. But I guess what I don't understand is how did we get to the point in places like San Francisco and Seattle where open drug use is actually permitted? They do that under what they call the harm reduction program. And that's a problem. It gives harm reduction a bad name. That's not harm reduction to basically keep people in the perpetual cycle of not change. However, you can give people Narcan. You can give them clean needles. You can help them stay safe. And as my partner used to say, move that needle forward. Okay. Do you feel like doing things different this week? Do you feel, but you can't be pushy. So it's a real tricky thing. You have to want, you have to lead a horse to water and want to make them drink. The problem in San Francisco is just about, here's the water trowel. Have as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> We're not, until the public screams enough. In the book, I wrote about uh, when I saw those kids in front of the Graham Theater. And I forget his, the name I used in the book. I don't want to say his real name. Came up to me crying about smoking a pipe, crack pipe crying about uh, losing his kids. He just typed me the other day. He was one of the worst heroin users I've ever seen. We found him literally half dead, slumped over in chairs, not breathing. We saved his life a few times. I watched him go through the hospital, still couldn't quit heroin. He's clean and sober and working now and is about to get promoted as a supervisor. Just typed me a couple weeks ago. Said, hey, man, I want to thank you for everything. Wow. Jail did it for him. I had two caseworkers come up to me and say, if it wasn't for prison, I wouldn't be standing here shaking your hand. However, so yes. I had that girl, <laughs> Shannon, yeah. who I reunited with her little boy. She left behind. Jail would have destroyed her. Okay. And she fixed herself. She did it on her own, but she moved the needle forward. Okay. So, but the problem is, is some people say never, ever jail. And some people right. say only jail. Right. And it just, it just depends. Right. So we don't have enough Eric's to solve this problem. You have to be, or am I allowed to curse on here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, you have to be kind of a fucked up person to do this <laughs> fucked up work. And that's well, the problem. It's, it has, when you're out there and you're standing there watching these people dying in front of you, when you're watching and you're seeing, you're, like I said, experiencing it, you're feeling it, smelling it, tasting, you're standing there in the middle of it and you are with them in their abyss and the horror that you're absorbing. Well, that's hard on people. That's where burnout comes from, like in the medical right. field. So I, I paid a toll for it. Right. It affected my marriage. It affected me. I'm still now recovering. I've been diagnosed with complex PTSD. That This was just a small part of it. And I still have nightmares over the kids I feel I left behind. I felt like I felt more like a father, like I abandoned them. Yeah. Um, not everybody can take that role. It's too hard on people mentally to do it. But yeah, if more people would do, would get, just get past the ideologies of everybody needs to go to jail or no one should go to jail. We don't want to make them feel like criminals. Get past your own feelings. What has the toll been? Um, almost lost my marriage. Uh, I'm repairing that now. I, uh, I just fell into the, uh, the way my doctor described it. You have PTSD, which I have from the incidents I went through, and complex PTSD, which is a pretty new diagnosis. It's not even in the DSM-5. Uh, he said it's like PTSD on steroids. 
affected my sleep, my eating, turning into a hermit. It's a long list of issues and I'm battling that every day, focused on improving my health and realizing that uh, accepting my limitations as a human, respecting mother nature, which I didn't do before. And complex in this context means? It, you can look it up, but basically it almost always requires some type of early childhood issues too. I had a pretty tough childhood and you bring that with you and you basically, you trauma chase, you chase trauma. And I did know a lot of cops who, and EMTs uh, like me who got into being first responders because they wanted to be around that trauma all the time, the excitement of it. It's hmm. what you know. Complex PTSD is very specific. Are you up for t telling me what the childhood trauma was? Oh, that's a that's a whole <laughs> set of podcasts in itself. Uh, um, it, it's it's a long story. It's hard to explain quickly. But I had a pretty tough childhood with both parents uh, divorced and uh, some physical abuse lots of mental and emotional abuse that carried over. And I realized that, that it gave me something called alexithymia. I just learned the book called The Body Learns the Score. Have you mm -hmm. ever heard of it? I have. Excellent book. I recommend that to anybody out there who's interested in trauma at all. That's the Bible, the golden chalice of uh, mental health. The body keeps the score. Yeah. yeah, body keeps the score. And I learned uh, something called alexithymia where, and I've seen a lot of cops like this, where you can stand there. Like I told you, I'm looking at this 10-year-old who hung himself in a closet and I'm not feeling anything. I'm just feeling dead inside. And I'm thinking, this is not normal. You know, you come home to your family and it's a birthday and you just, I don't feel nothing. One of the strangest questions to ask me is, how do you feel? What do you mean, how do I feel? I, I can feel my breath. I can feel my feet. I got a, I got an itch right here. What do you mean? How do I feel? And that actually is one of the symptoms of it. And I've seen a lot of cops who probably, who I know have complex PTSD, and, but just don't know it, haven't been diagnosed. And it will take a toll on you. I think that's why so many cop marriages end. It's, the infidelities are just a, a symptom of it that comes from that, that type of trauma. It's, it's a lifelong trauma that affects the way the brain develops, your emotional growth, your emotional connections. You literally lose touch with what you feel and how you feel about things. When you realize, oh man, this ain't normal. It's, it's a scary feeling to realize that, man, this stuff ain't normal, that, I'm, that, that I feel completely disconnected from my emotional spectrum. I basically have two emotions, irritated, and not irritated. And I'm one or the other. I got nothing in the middle. And I was wondering if, you know, I, I had heard you mention your childhood traumas, and I wonder if that's what made you so sensitive to these kids on the subway. Yes. Okay. It definitely, I, I'm understanding now that the complex PTSD from the traumas, you know, that I, professional and personal traumas, made it easy for me to feel empathy. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy right. is I feel bad for you. Empathy is I feel your pain. Right. I could feel, their, even though I'm dead inside, I see a dead kid. All of a sudden, I can feel this young girl, I, one young girl who looked up at me and said, man, I was looking for someone and I was going around asking if people had seen this girl and I held up the picture of this young girl who grew up in a cult, a sex cult. 
said, man, I wish somebody cared enough about me in life to come looking for me. And man, did that hit me emotional. I'm thinking, why can I feel so emotional with that? But I'm looking at dead kids and not feeling anything. Or I go to my son's birthday party and I feel dead inside. It's my son. Why am I not? And then you feel guilty. You feel like I'm a piece of shit. There's something wrong with me. I'm just a scumbag. That's all it is. Maybe it's just guilt. You, you don't know what it is. You, you just know something's wrong, but you can't put a finger on it. And when you get the diagnosis, that's one of the best parts about getting diagnosed is you give it a name and you understand it's, I have a condition. Something was done to me. And that's what the phrase they're always beating into my head. You're not fucked up. Some fucked up things were done to you. It's, this was done to you. You were made this way. And that's key to keeping your self-esteem out of the toilet. Because I got to a point where I was having suicidal ideations. Um, I remember as a deputy thinking, all I got to do is take one step backwards as uh, another officer put in his book, one step backwards into that traffic and whoops, whoopsie. Yeah. Now they get insurance payout and I get a hero's funeral and mm. it's all over. And you start thinking like that. You start thinking I'm worth more dead than alive. All I'm doing is upsetting my family. They're pissed at me. They hate me now. They're mad at me, whatever. And cop logic starts taking over where you rationalize being better to end your life than to stay alive. And that's the danger. That's the pit you fall into. You, you did say that in retirement, all of these things come back. The stuff that you were able to push down while you were working now is kind of coming up is that what's going on yeah it's all bubbling up the key is getting that diagnosis for cops i found out you, you can't just go to any old therapist you have to talk to a trauma-informed therapist somebody who's trained specifically in trauma um, i just found one guy now who's also uh, ex-military and works with law enforcement and that is the key to everything first get the diagnosis Second, don't overlook those medications. Those medications, at least just temporarily, it can stabilize and calm things down enough for you to get a grip on things, okay. for you to start building your own tools. And it's daily work. It's not shuffling it off and saying, yay, I'm fixed. It's reminding yourself, I got to keep doing the work, just like the homeless kids. I, my heart hurts that it has taken this kind of toll on you. And, and yet I'm so grateful for all that you've done. Thank you. It's been a, it's been a rough ride, but uh, it's not over yet. I'm still doing things. I'm still trying to work on some projects. So, Well, and as you look back over your career, I mean, can you find comfort in, you just talked about a guy whose life that you saved writing to you and telling, I mean, you, you've saved his life. I got a few wins in there that I, try to look at, but it just, it just never feels like enough. That's still some of the things I have to work through. I always, all I think about are the ones that I walked away from one girl who felt like a daughter to me. I miss her tremendously. I'll say her name, Hannah. It hurts. Even now I'm getting emotional. I, you feel, you feel your worst pain. You don't feel your successes. That's mm. just, I'm, I think we're hardwired that way. That's where in the battle lies. And that's what I have to deal with. I, I, that girl, I got her back to her son, her seven-year-old son. That was my greatest win. 
the the one that the news articles wrote about about me she's in the hospital now i fought my ass off to get her off the street autistic being abused had brain surgery the hospital kicked her back out to the street and just would not admit her would not get her off the street the mother was a nurse screaming please don't put my daughter back out on the street and they did anyway i find her in trash uh, she's happy and healthy and, and, and now in a facility that's making her better. But I don't feel it the same way. I feel the losses. And you feel you feel every one of those losses. I'm, I'm assuming, because I've read a bit about it, soldiers feel the same thing. It doesn't matter how many battles you won. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished, how many medals are on your chest. You think about the people you've lost. You think about the failures out there and it. And it eats you up sometimes. So I'm trying not to let it eat me up. Yeah. Let's talk about the book before you go. Um, it's a great book. And you wrote it with your wife, right? Yes. I understand it had a toll on her and on your marriage, but clearly she understands what this meant to you to write this book with you. Does, was that part of the healing for both of you? Yeah. It, it also her beliefs. She's uh strong believer in the work and in helping others. We started a nonprofit down here together to try to continue the work, but it was, it was a painful journey for her to document the things that were hurting her at the same time, helping people, but hurting her and the, and the kids because yeah. yeah. I became distant and lost for a while there. Yeah. Are things getting better for you and your wife? Yeah, much better. Okay. okay. We're, we're the best place we've ever been. Oh, good. Um, even after everything we've been through, which is, we're, we've been together since we were 16. Oh my God. We went to the same high school. So um, <laughs> we've known each other for a long time. She's had her own traumas. Mm. We trauma bonded. So mm. working on myself, working on the marriage, that's yeah. the key day to day. It's a profession that takes so much out of you. And then you've got a, a world that doesn't appreciate you. And sometimes you have a department that doesn't understand, you know, they, they tell you family first, family first, but try calling in sick, mm -hmm. try saying, Hey, Sarge, um, I need a mental health day. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so sometimes you get that double speak, you get departments that don't understand uh, something's getting to you. It sounds like it should be easy to accept, but then when it comes time to needing help, you got to be careful. You could end up uh, getting into an IA. You could end up getting your gun. New York called it the rubber gun squad. In California, they have what's called a pitches motion where they can, the public defender, the attorneys can have your personnel file pulled mm. and reviewed mm -hmm. by a judge to see if anything about you and your personnel file affected the case. So how can we ask cops to come forward and expose all your weaknesses and ask for help? when there's serious repercussions for that. Because if I lose my job, I can't pay my mortgage. I can't feed my family. I could be homeless. My kids could be homeless. So a lot of cops, I think I, I read a survey that said cops fear administrative repercussions more than they do being shot. Wow. The fear of being shot is secondary. Wow. I know, I know that was true for me. I, I didn't care about that. I like that gang shooting I drove into. I went in there balls deep. <laughs> Hell, if I take a bullet, okay. They get a payout from my uh, life insurance and everything's good. But an IA, 
where they I lose my pension or a lawsuit when I got sued and they tell you punitive damages where the department can't pay. It has to come out of your pocket as punishment. Oh my God, did I go into a panic? Wow. At least in California, where I was at, I didn't see many departments that had a good reputation for really taking care of their people. It was always about liability, liability, liability. Don't get sued. Don't get in trouble. Don't do anything that's going to affect your career as a chief or as a lieutenant. That's where the pressure comes from that breaks cops. comes from the inside. And it's just a shame we don't do more to counter that. I had some great bosses. I want to say that. Now police chief of Los Altos, Averett. The best boss, the best boss I ever had in my career. And she's the one that let me do this work. She's the one who recognized the value of it. So I was able to do it because of her, because I had, I had good bosses. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh, well, think about what they, they were letting me do. They knew that I would, before I'd go home, I would go and walk into the tenderloin to give care packages to these kids or go find someone to connect with them. And they weren't yelling at me or ordering me not to. They let me come into my days off to work cases, to put on a polo shirt and go around the tenderloin with my partner to do just this work alone. They were extremely supportive. So it's a team effort. I can't take all the credit. You have this perspective now. What thoughts would you like to impart? What advice would you like to share with those listening, some of whom may be feeling the way you felt or feel now? I would say have enough self-reflection, insight to recognize your limitations. And if you feel like something's wrong, there's probably something going on. Go see someone and get that diagnosis. Yeah. So I'm going to keep doing the work. I'm writing. I'm still writing. I'm doing actually a little bit of fiction. I'm writing a police procedural about what it's like to be a cop from an inside perspective of a trainee and what he goes through. And I applied for a uh, case manager job at a local hospital. That's great. And as you said earlier, you and your wife started a nonprofit together to try to continue the work, uh, the Veritas Foundation. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for being a police officer. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Well, I'm glad for you had me on for people like you who get the message out there. Well, I thought the message was mostly about how to cure homelessness, but it really is how to keep going and how to keep yourself, how to keep yourself. You got to stay in the fight. I want to thank Eric for his time today and for being so emotionally open. I also really do want to thank him for all he did to save the lives of those he could. I encourage you to check out his book, What Doesn't Kill You, One Cop's Perspective on Homelessness, Mental Illness, and Addiction. You can find it on Amazon, both in paperback and Kindle, and you can find it on Audible. I'll include this information in the episode notes. You know, I hear through the stories I tell on the podcast, the struggles of the job, and what it takes from you. Please know that I do this podcast to make sure the rest of the world knows how much you give of yourself, and really to tell you thank you. And if I may be so bold as to say, I hope I can help you remember the wins. There are wins you might not even know about. I know from having done this work for 13 years that there are people who say that their lives change for the better because that officer arrested me. That officer may never know that. I am sure you saved a life doing a traffic stop. I am sure you saved a life by risking yours going lights and sirens to get to that call. 
I hope that I can help you think about the totality of what you have done, what you are doing. I see you. I hear you. I support you. Thank you for what you do. And thank all of you for listening.